Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The story as we have it from Eusebius is that Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity after he had a vision at the Milvian Bridge. It was October 28th in 312. And this is Eusebius, I'm quoting him, and he wrote this after Constantine had died. About the time of the midday sun, when the day was just turning, he said he saw with his own eyes in the sky and resting over the sun, a cross-shaped trophy formed from light and a text attached to it which said, By this, conquer. Amazement at the spectacle seized both him and the whole company of soldiers which was then accompanying him on a campaign. He was conducting somewhere and he witnessed the miracle. According to Lactantius, Constantine had a dream. He tells the story slightly differently. And in the dream then he saw the sign of the cross. And then he had them mark the sign of the cross on his soldiers' shields. And he followed then the the voice that said, fight under this name. And so my title this morning is, By This, By the Cross, Conquer in Power. And we're going to read from 1 Corinthians, or do we, in fact, serve in weakness? There is no detail in the story of Constantine that's not debated. That is, did he really convert to Christianity? Was he a sincere Christian? Was it simply out of convenience? I don't have the answers, and I'm not sure that the answers matter. But there are certain things that we do know. And that is that Constantine ceases to persecute Christians. In 311 AD, with the Edict of Milan, he returned the property that had been confiscated from Christians. And he made empire neutral in regard to any kind of religious worship. It made neither traditional religions illegal nor Christianity. It wasn't until 380, actually, under the Edict of Thessalonica, that Christianity is going to be made the state religion. And so this period from 312 to almost 100 years, actually, after Constantine, we'll still refer to it as the Constantinian shift. You could trace it even before Constantine a little bit. And it was, in many ways, a good thing, right? That Christians are not persecuted that there is a universal embrace of Christianity. But Constantinianism is going to change up every aspect of Christianity. And our own practice of Christianity to this day is very much under the influence of Constantinianism. And so I want to sort out the biblical from the Constantinian. But let's begin with Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians, and I'll refer to this in the beginning and conclusion, to get the principle, I think, that we're talking about. And of course, it's about the cross, the meaning of the cross. In chapter 2, Paul says in verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, 
proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Constantine might read this verse and agree, but the cross itself is going to completely be changed in meaning in the Constantinian period. Instead of a reviled instrument of torture, it is going to be put on swords and shields and made the official sign of the Holy Roman Empire. The shift that Roland Bainton, the church historian, describes, he says, the accession of Constantine terminated the pacifist period in church history. That is, for 300 years, the church had practiced nonviolence. That ceases. Now, that's an absolute statement that's not absolute. That is, there are exceptions to it. But there is a different form of the Christian faith that develops after Constantine. I'm going to list these. I'm going to describe this. But maybe the biggest one is the hardest to grasp. And that is that the change in the very basic understanding that maybe the early Christians did not notice the change in the social situation of the churches. Their very understanding of how and what we know is going to be changed up. Knowing according to the cross is now means knowing according to the empire. The epistemology or way of knowing by common sense or natural insight or the received wisdom that Paul is described as challenged by the cross is not going to be challenged. That is that people can rest comfortable in what the empire and the emperor tell them are true because they're Christians and they're the official Christians. People are going to read their Bibles in view of the importance of the Constantinian shift and they're going to see this, oh, this is a kind of fulfillment of salvation history. They see it as a kind of work of Christ and they don't distinguish anything in it that might be needing critique. They're going to read their Bibles in view of the new common sense way of understanding, which assume that biblical truth and ordinary human wisdom tend to coincide. It's just self-evident to them. They did not have to go to their Bibles to justify the Constantinian shift. As John Yoder puts it, instead they inserted their understanding of the Bible within the framework of other new commitments, especially the conviction that the events of the fourth century had been providential. God brought this about. And the broad cultural assumption that causes them to assimilate Christian wisdom to the wisdom of their neighbors. And so they're working within this new framework, a different understanding of the Bible. I think that's the big shift and that's the most abstract. What I'm going to say from here on out is just very concrete. And obviously, you know, the pacifist kind of Christianity that was taught by the first church for 300 years that we think is central to the gospel, it didn't survive. And so, point one, there is a different authority. Constantine is going to call the first church council, Council of Nicaea. 
And church councils come to bear a new authority, the authority of the emperor, the authority of the empire. And this then continues in both the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Western Church, or what was this, the church at that point. Constantine called himself the Bishop of Bishops. And by the way, he wasn't baptized at the Council of Nicaea. You know, was he a Christian? Well, he actually is baptized at the end of his life. But he brings his pagan assumptions about the place of priests and the hierarchy of the church into how we organize Christianity. And he determined the key phrasing. You know, in any church, any group of churches, they're going to appeal to the Council of Nicaea, but actually Constantine determined the phrasing. I'm not saying he determined everything about it, but he is the last editor. As John Yoder puts it, his primary concern in determining doctrinal issues, as with the later emperors, was what was best for the empire. The presumption was that the church must speak with a unified voice because he's going to use the religion to unify the empire. That's what many historians think is actually happening with Constantine. This centralized leadership, centralized authority, of course, will eventually develop into the Pope and the authority of the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Number two, a different ethic. Prior to Constantine, for 300 years, Christians refused military service. Subsequent to Constantine, by 436, it not only favored Christians, but you were required to be a Christian to be a Roman soldier. There was not only an abandonment of nonviolence, but there was no longer the resource for the, of the New Testament for ethics. This is a new situation. So there was a turn by Ambrose and Augustine, who are the key, you know, maybe Augustine is the key theologian of the Constantinian shift. And they're going to appeal to Cicero, a Roman thinker, to work out a new ethic. Number three, there's a different worldview. Augustine is a Neoplatonist. And the rise of Constantine would cement this understanding. You know, what is Platonism? Well, there's a duality. There's earth and things on earth are unreal and what's in heaven is real. And the rise of Constantine cements this duality that presumed God, he's using the emperor to do some things and he's using Christians to do other things. That is, there's a dualism. What God is doing with his left hand, as Luther will say later, he's doing something different with his right hand. There is the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, and the peace of Christians. They're two different things. But in some way, these two understandings are thought to complement one another. You remember the preacher, Robert Jeffries? He said, well, I would never want Jesus to be president. And of course, he was justifying the sins of Donald Trump. That fits this period. That is that Jesus could not be Caesar. He couldn't be president. Because to be a ruler, he must employ something other than the ethics of the New Testament. As the world is split, Jesus' ethics pertains to the private self. Oh, I just do this in my head. And the soul-body split, necessary for a violent Christianity, and maybe just an immoral Christianity. 
because that's really what we're describing. Number four, there's a different definition of the church. Under Theodosius, an emperor who came after Constantine, 379, he issued an edict that defined the one true Catholicism, you know, Catholic universal church, as Trinitarian believers in communion with the bishops of Rome and Alexandria. And the Council of Constantinople confirmed whatever the church decided, such as excluding the Donatists. The Donatists were a group of people that believed, you know, in the persecution, there were some bishops who were apostate. They denied Christ. And the Donatists said, well, wait a minute. You know, we shouldn't just let these people back in. And the Council of Constantinople said, no, we're going to let them back in. And the Arians, that says they're not part of the church. It did not have the support of the state, and therefore, you know, both the Donatists and the Arians were excluded. And Augustine believed that the state had to force the heretics in. He actually quotes Jesus, compel them to come in. And their property was confiscated, their meetings banned, meaning that state support determines the boundaries of the church through state power. The power of the sword decides who enters the doors of the church. Now, another thing is happening here in regard to the definition of church. Eventually, everybody in Rome is a Christian, right? Maybe I should put air quotes there. They were all presumed to be Christian because everybody was baptized. And unless you were a Donatist or an Arian or a barbarian, everybody was a Christian, except for a few Jews. And no matter the level of your objective commitment to Christianity, you were a Christian. Wait a minute, where's the church then? And so Augustine says the true church is now invisible. We can't see it any longer. Because the visible church... There was no hint of a subjective commitment necessary. And this leads to the notion that most people counted as Christians, li listen to what I'm saying because it's strange, were not saved. Everybody was a Christian, but most of them are not saved. <laughs> and the church is to be found primarily among the priests. And the priests are authorized by other priests so that the sequence of ordination coming down from Jesus, they thought, through the bishops, through those authorized to perform sacraments, these are the ones who most clearly demonstrate the presence of God. But even Augustine said, well, wait a minute. Some of the priests are just hypocrites. And so the invisibility of the church is nearly complete. And this means that the visible form of Christianity can be described and must be described in non-New Testament ways. You know, this Neoplatonic dualism divides the visible church from the invisible church. Number five, there's a different definition of the state. Rome became Christian. We have a Christian state, a Christian empire. It transitioned from the persecution of Christians to the imperial requirement of one Christian norm for all citizens. And people were still free. You know, you could be a non-Christian, but of course it was a great disadvantage. 
And there was no alternative public worship. And this would have profound effects on most every aspect of Christian doctrine, such as being baptized and remaining in communion, because it involves both church and state. Point six, which is very similar, there's a different understanding of church-society relations. We think of prior to this that Paul is talking about the wisdom of God stands over and against the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities. This is no longer true. The story is told that Pope Sylvester and Emperor Constantine, they agreed, let's split the realm between us, the church one on one hand and the empire on the other. But the practical result was the government of the church fell into the control of the civil government so that the one who bore the sword would determine who could be a bishop and who could come into the church. Number seven, there's a different meaning for baptism. Because of the new relationship, becoming a Christian and becoming a citizen were fused. Infant baptism, and we don't know where infant baptism came from, where it originated. But we do know that at this point it became universal. No citizen was left unbaptized or should be left unbaptized. Neither citizenship nor church membership were voluntary. Everybody's a Roman citizen, everybody's a Christian, and those are the same thing. Number eight, there's a different set of rituals. You know, about 90% of the population when Constantine was converted were not Christians. And so they bring pagan rituals such as the spring fertility celebrations. They would be celebrated under the Passion and Easter. We have the Easter egg. You know, we have all these elements. And of course, Christmas. Christmas is a little more vague. We're not quite sure when or what the celebration was. But the idea is that it seems to have also been a pagan celebration. The cult of the dead in Japan, this is the religion really, you pray to the dead, the dead ancestors. It just seems to be the universal religion. It becomes Christianized, that it's given a Christian flavor. You pray to the dead saints. And these new celebrations arose with Constantine. The attempt is to take in what was already observed. That is, that we're going to make the transition into the church easier. Now the big one, number nine, a different theology. This is all-inclusive, but clearly the problem of violence. The church would explain the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, that doesn't apply publicly. That just applies to your individual self, to your private self. And then they would begin to focus on passages like the cleansing of the temple. Jesus says to Peter, where's your sword? They're going to focus on these little pieces to try to justify state violence and war. And so there is also a relinquishing of the possibility of a fullness or maturity or perfection in the Christian life. Part of the relationship between church and state, well, we need the state so as government can constrain sin. And sin then with Augustine, it's original sin. It's everybody. They're born that way. And that's partly, you know, well, you have to be baptized as an infant because sin is a, arrives upon conception. 
And gradually there's a new meaning that would be given to the death of Christ. The original Christus Victor, that Christ defeated the principalities and powers. Well, they knew who the main principle and power was. It's the emperor. And they said, well, there's the devil, the emperor himself. Well, if the emperor is Christian, you got a problem. And so there developed what is called divine satisfaction, later penal substitution. They're very late developments. Augustine's notion of the church invisible, it came with a new doctrine of election. He presumed, oh, maybe 5% of the population of Rome might actually be elect and saved. And you could not be sure, who is that 5%? How do you know if you're in or you're out? And so it's secret. Nobody knows. Think here, John Calvin is going to come up with the idea of double predestination. Very similar, very close. The last one, number 10. There's just a different view of history. Prior to Constantine, if you were a Christian, the one thing you knew was the church. The experience of life in the church, in the body of Christ. That was your reality. After Constantine, the church is invisible. And you just had to take it on faith that there even was a church. Before Constantine, how is God working in history? It's a little bit obscure. What's he doing with kings and things like that? But after Constantine, it's clear. God's using Constantine. He's God's man. And God is governing history through Rome and the emperor. And so the eschatology of the New Testament is just turned upside down. Now you might think, oh, a good thing we had the Protestant Reformation and we got rid of all this. No, actually the Protestant Reformation is even worse in regards to Constantinianism. In a way it aggravates it because the princes and the city-states that Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, they're all going to depend upon they're dependent upon these states to preserve the new faith. And so notions like just war, Christian warfare, the role of the church and state, Luther's notion that God has doing one thing with the state with his left hand and another thing with his, through the church with his right hand. It just accentuates the problem of violence. And Augustine's Constantinian dualism it continues in Protestant notions that perfection or mature practice, that's for another world. And what counts now is not your outward ethics, but your inner faith. There is a reaction against the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church. But unfortunately, the thing that takes its place is the authority of the Bible. But in a way, the Bible is going to take on a weight that had previously been invested in the emperor and in the pope. There is a continuation of just war theory, just war that the Christian princes and kings and emperors, oh, we can, we can kill people, it's all right. But of course, to believe that, you're already departing from the ethics of Jesus, the teaching of the New Testament. You're believing in common sense, and that's my point here in regard to Corinthians. You're believing in the wisdom of this world, human reason. Roland Baton, who is kind of the key church historian of the previous generation, he says there are small remnants. I don't mean to paint a completely dark picture, because Christianity, I believe, survives. But I don't believe it survives in the place that is most visible. It will survive in small sects and among small groups of people. 
But we're located on the other side of this shift. And I think it's difficult maybe to recognize what is Christianity and what is Constantinianism. And I think in this day and age, many people turning from the church because of the sin and violence and ugliness of Christianity, maybe it's a good time to say, wait a minute, the Constantinian form of the faith is not Christianity, though that's what we're surrounded by. And so begin with Paul's principle of the cross. Go back to 1 Corinthians. We presume that we too are sinners and that our understanding needs to be critiqued in the light of the cross. See, that's what they failed to do. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of a man, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. I believe Paul's message to the Corinthians still applies to us. What takes place with Constantine is that human wisdom becomes predominant and it begins to bend the basic understanding of Christian wisdom. Christian language is going to take on a very different meaning. The Inquisition, the idea that you can torture the heretics and save their soul by torturing their body, or just war, that we can kill the infidels' bodies but we can save their soul. That's not Islam. That's Christianity before Islam. That's Constantinianism. Better that the body be destroyed and the soul saves. And so Paul describes this. Shall we do evil that good may abound? This divided understanding begins to focus on ritual instead of following Jesus. It makes of the cross an instrument and justification for doing violence, killing, swords and shields, rather than laying down our lives for the other. It makes human authorities the primary mediators in place of the sole mediator, who is Christ. It trusts in the sword, human power, human wisdom, rather than the wisdom of God. Paul says, we speak God's wisdom, verse 7, in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Constantine compromised the faith. He accommodated the faith. He divided the faith. He made the faith violent. He made it nationalistic. He made it a faith of the sword and not the cross. Either we employ the wisdom that puts people on crosses or we follow the wisdom of taking up the cross. The cross cannot be fit to human wisdom. It is its own sort of wisdom which stands over and against the power of human wisdom. And so to take up the sword as if it is a cross, to depend on human safety and violence as if it is the security of God, I believe is to exchange the truth for a lie. 
The cross is not an emblem for conquering in power, but it is a sign for serving in humble love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.